Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So tonight we're going to be focusing on the first aspect in that list, which is we are to put on tender mercies and kindness. To put on tender mercies and kindness. Notice, if you're a Christian here tonight, this is not a recommendation. He does not say, if you feel like it, put on tender mercies. If you feel like it, be nice to someone else. Be kind to someone else. It is a commandment. If you are the elect of God, if you have chosen God as your Lord and Savior, you should also know that God has chosen you first. And if he has chosen you first, he has chosen you for something. Chosen you for good works. And if he has chosen you for good works, that means you should be able to do what he asks you to do. Because he made you able to do those things. So if he made you for something, what are those things? Well, the first thing he says is to put on tender mercies and to put on kindness. So the question we might ask at this point is, what are we morally obligated to do? How can I, what do I have to do in order to be a Christian, to call myself a Christian? What is the requirements? Is this a list of requirements saying to be a Christian means that you're going to be kind? Does this mean that if I'm not kind, I'm not an elect? If this means that I'm not kind, if I don't have tender mercies, if I'm not like compassionate towards someone else, does this mean I'm not a Christian? What is the, the moral obligation for us? What are, what are we held accountable for uh, to be a Christian? Well, I have an illustration for you today. So I need you guys to focus in. I want you to think this through with me. We're going to go through in a popular illustration uh, that I didn't make up. But it's going to boggle your mind. Let's say there was, you're walking down the road and you pass by a lake. And it's a shallow lake, not too deep. And there's a child in the middle of the lake. He's drowning. Now it's a shallow lake, but the child is drowning. Do you go save the child? What do you think? Yeah, well, here's the thing. What if I told you in saving the child, you're going to get muddy. You have brand new jeans. You might have brand new sneakers. But going into that lake, you save the child. And in the midst of it, you might get some mud on your shoes or something like that. Would you still be morally obligated to save the child? Yes. You say yes. Okay, so when I say morally obligated, I mean if you didn't save the child... Would someone hold you accountable for it? Like if you chose, I'm not going to save the child, would you be held accountable for not saving that child? What do you think? How many of you say yes? Raise your hand. 
majority of you. How many of you say no? You shouldn't be morally obligated to save that child. Because what if you don't save the child, right? Well, just because I don't save the child doesn't mean that I'm not a loving person. I just, you know, I wasn't able to do it. But let's say you had, you had it within your ability to save this child. It's a shallow pond. You can walk in. You're not going to drown. You'll be fine. You have the guarantee the child will be saved. Are you held accountable? If you say no, you aren't morally accountable. I don't think many of you did. But let's say you, you said, I am not morally responsible for saving that child. I shouldn't be held accountable if the child drowns. What you're basically saying is, let's say children, I mean, there's millions of children every year that are boarded in the womb and they're killed. Are you morally responsible for not putting an end to abortion? Now, most of you would say, well, of course, it's abortion. Abortion is killing a child, which means that we're held responsible. We're morally accountable for people that kill other babies. So the question now becomes, okay, if we say we are morally accountable for that child, I am responsible if I don't go in, even at the cost of my new shoes, even at the cost of my sparkling new jeans, I should still go and save that child. If you say that, how come many of you did not help with the relief effort over the past week? Let's say in the past week there are plenty of people that were drowning or they're in their homes and they couldn't get out or they didn't have food or they were starving. They didn't have heat. They didn't have electricity. Are you morally accountable? Or are you morally obligated to help those around you that need help? Now, how many of you would say no? Don't raise your hand. Think about it. Are you morally accountable for the people around you that are suffering? There were 16 people found dead in an apartment complex yesterday in New York City. Are people held morally accountable for not helping those people if they knew what was happening? Let's take it one step further. Let's say there are people that are starving in Africa. And let's say that you had a guarantee if you gave up $5 of your money every week, you could go save that family in Africa. You could save 10 families if you gave up $5 a week. Are you morally obligated to give $5? Are you morally obligated to save a life? If you know and you have a guarantee, there's no cost to you. Maybe you lose $5. Maybe you don't get pizza that week. But should you be held accountable for not saving that life? Well, we all want to justify ourselves right? We always have an excuse. I'm not obligated to help because other people take care of it. You know, out in Africa, there's people in Africa. We have mission teams. There's other people sent there. Maybe I didn't help with the relief effort this week, but that's because, you know, my parents did or my friends did, my neighbors did. There are people out there that are taking care of it or someone else will get to that person. But let's say that in that same illustration with the lake, we have 10 people. There's 10 people standing around that child in the lake. They're all staring at the child. Is any one of them less accountable because there's more people? No. Someone still has to go save the child. And none of those people would be any less responsible if they didn't save the child, right? So then you might say, well, what about God? If God is sovereign and he knows that everyone has a time and everyone has a place in which they'll die, 
isn't God ultimately responsible to save that life? If they died, it was just their time to go. Does God have a moral responsibility and accountability to save a life? Well, you might think that, you might not. Because then you might say, well, what if the person that we're saving isn't a child, an innocent child? Let's say it's Hitler. Are you, are you now morally obligated to save a life when it's an evil life? Well, you might say, no. What if you save Hitler and you know that he's going to exterminate millions of Jews? Right? So now we have this confused view of, of morality because now we're thinking, well, we can't save everybody. Especially, let's say you have a guarantee, if you save this person's life, that person will go kill someone else. Now do you save that person? You know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're saving an evil person. Are you morally obligated to save that person? Now you might say, well, yeah. Well, I don't think that I'm morally obligated anymore because they're going to do an evil thing. They're going to cause more harm than good. So I think this thought experiment kind of brings to mind some of the excuses we might bring when uh, holding account of whether we should go help someone else. Maybe we should not help everyone because if we helped everybody, if everyone gave all of their money to the poor, I mean, like, what if there's no limit? We gave all of our money to the poor, then we'll be poor. And then there'll be more poor people than people that are um, in the world right now. Or maybe you're saying, well, if everyone helps and gives up their time, people are going to get hurt. You might lose a finger sawing up some stuff or you might get injured while you're working out on the field. It might cause more harm than good. Or maybe that family really doesn't deserve it. You know, they're a nasty family and we hate them. So maybe I'm not obligated to help. So the question is, who are we morally obligated to help? We obviously shouldn't help everybody. So who should we help? Turn with me to Luke chapter 10 for the answer. The parable of the good Samaritan. Verse 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, he was asking this question. He wasn't asking, how can I live forever? Because the Jewish understanding of the term eternal life was that you were entering the kingdom of God. Because every Jew believed that your life passed on and you were going to live forever. But his understanding in the question was, how do I live an abundant life, a life serving in the kingdom of God? Not just living forever, but specifically, how do you enter into God's kingdom? And that is a life that begins now. The kingdom of God is not just you're living forever. The kingdom of God is not just extra days added to your life. As my youth pastor said, it's extra life added to your days. The kingdom of God is not extra days to your life. It's adding extra life to your days. In other words, Jesus is giving his very life. When you enter the kingdom of God, Jesus gives you everything that you have possibly imagined. Maybe you're confused about. Maybe you had a dream or a passion or, or something that you wanted to follow after. At the core of it, at the root of it, Jesus is that one that you were looking for, for fulfillment. The life that you are waiting for. In other words, to enter the kingdom of God, to inherit eternal life. When he asked that question, it's not a question of how do I go to heaven right now? Because you just kill yourself and I guess you get, go to heaven. That's not what he's asking. What he's saying is how can I experience eternal life now? So when you realize when you become a Christian, you're not just waiting for heaven to come. 
You're not just saying, oh my gosh, this earth stinks. I hate this testing ground. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Yes, okay, that's a good thing. But when you accept Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior, that doesn't just mean the life afterwards, but it means eternal life begins today. That means Jesus transforms your life. He comes into your heart. He's your Lord and your Savior, and he gives you direction how to maximize your time here on this earth now. So eternal life can begin today. And so he asks, how do I obtain that kind of life? John 10.10 says, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they can have it more abundantly. Is that kind of, is that the kind of life that you're looking for? Well, verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? In other words, Jesus answers him saying, the answer is not found in anything you can find in this world. It's only found in the word of God. And so in verse 27, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, the lawyer asked, who should I save? Who am I morally obligated to help? How do I know who I will be held responsible for? The fundamental problem is that this man was asking the wrong question. If we're always asking, well, what am I supposed to do to meet the requirements of Christianity? How many people should I help? We're asking the wrong question. It's kind of like when we have the default answer and everyone says, who do you love the most? Jesus. Of course, it's kind of like the thing that you answer without actually thinking about your answer. When people ask you, who is, uh, you know, well, who do you love? If you say, well, of course it's Jesus, and then it's my family, and then, or then it's my girlfriend, and then it's just the pat answer that we give out sometimes without thinking about what does it really mean to love Jesus? Verse 30 says, then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which one of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. In California, there's this place called the Winchester Mansion. It's got about seven stories to it. Well, it has four now, but it used to have seven stories to it. There's a lady that uh, was in charge of the mansion. She owned it. She was left millions of dollars and she believed, the legend goes, that someone went, went up to her and told her 
that she has to keep working on her house. And the day that she fails to do it, she'll die. Or if she keeps on working on her house, she'll inherit eternal life. She'll live forever. So from the day that she inherited the house till the day she died, she had people in the house working on it, doing construction every single day. You can Google this. It's pretty crazy. There's like, uh, um, there's uh, staircases on the ceiling. There's all kinds of kooky, weird stuff all over the place. And the place looks like the weirdest mansion. And people believe it's like a haunted house now too. And she has seven stories on top of it because she couldn't stop because she believed the, the day she stopped working on the house, she would die. And so, in the same way, I think a lot of people are busying themselves with work. Pointless work. Staircases that don't lead anywhere. Building on their house without purpose. Oh yeah, I have a purpose. Yeah, I have something to do. But in reality, you don't. You don't ask the fundamental question, why am I building on this house? So in other words, you might be going to school. You might be pursuing a hobby. You might be pursuing a college, maybe applying to certain colleges to get a career, to get a job, to get a family. To what? For what? For money? Then what? People don't ask the fundamental question, why am I so stinking busy? Because people say, oh yeah, Alan, I would love to serve. I would love to help those people in need over there, but I'm just too busy. I have things in my life you don't understand. If you understood, if you put your, yourself in my shoes, you have it easy. You know, if you understood where I'm coming from, then you would understand. But I'm just too busy. I've had a friend that's worked 60, over 60 hours a week for the past four years. Busy. You know, he would go to work at 7 in the morning. He wouldn't get home until 11 p.m. at night every single day except one day a week for four years. Everyone is so busy. I think that's the characteristic of our nation is everyone wants to be busy. And it's almost like when you get less sleep, you get to brag more. Oh, I'm so tired. How are you tired? You got four hours of sleep. I got three hours of sleep. Like everyone wants to brag about being so busy. And we don't even know why we're so busy. What's the reason? What's taking us away from the things that are important? Why didn't you read your Bible? I'm too busy. What are you doing? Well, I was doing, you know, I have a lot of homework and I have a lot of stuff like that. Why do you do homework? I want good grades. Why do you get good grades? I don't know. I'm just, I was told to get good grades. You realize you, everyone here was thrown into existence. In other words, you were born and you didn't have a choice. And you're given things. You're given free will. You have the responsibility to do certain things. You're held accountable for things that you don't have a choice about. You didn't put that drowning child there in the lake. But yet... If you don't take care of that child, you're held responsible. There's going to become a time in your life when you're, I don't know, you could be 20, you might be 40, you might be 100. When you look back at your life and say, why was I so busy? And you don't know. You can't give an answer because you haven't thought about the most important questions of life. Why was that priest so busy? Why was that Levite so busy? Maybe they had really good excuses. Maybe they thought, well, someone else is bound to help that guy on the road. Maybe they thought, well, you know, this road is really dangerous. When Jesus gave this parable, it is well known to the people that the road he was talking about was not a safe road. It was dangerous. They could have been robbed. So maybe they thought, maybe this guy is just trapping us. Maybe he has ill intentions. Maybe this is an evil guy. 
that wants to trap me. So when I help him, he's going to steal everything that I have. Maybe they're thinking, well, I can't help. I'm a priest. And back in the ritual, back in the day is, if they got blood on them, they couldn't serve in the temple. So he said, well, I have more important things to do for God. Therefore, I can't go help this guy. I'm too busy. What do you expect me to do? You know, the Samaritan looked at him and said, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to think about if he's going to sabotage me or ambush me. I'm going to help that man. A lot of us are too busy, captivated with stuff. I don't even think it's social media. I think we're busy with things that we put on ourselves. And you have to ask why. And you might say, well, Alan, what do you expect me to do? Give up everything for Jesus? What do you expect me to do? D.L. Moody says that this one guy once said to him, Mr. Moody, now that I am converted, must I give up the world? And Mr. Moody said, no, you haven't got to give up the world. If you give a good ringing testimony for the Son of God, the world will give you up pretty quick. They won't want you around. You know, the Samaritan was someone that was offensive to the Jews. They don't want him around. We're going to get a little bit to that a little bit later. But I want to ask you an important question. How do we have compassion? How is it possible that this Samaritan was different than the priest? A man that stood in the temple, a man that went to church, he taught the people of God. How is it that this priest didn't stop? Well, I'm not saying that we're supposed to set up a clinic and necessarily start our own relief organization and we got to help as many people as possible because we're all accountable for every single person in the world. No, that's not what the parable is teaching. Because notice the Samaritan uh, didn't start a hospital for the poor. He didn't start a hospital for the, the wounded in the parable. He helped the need that was right in front of him. Jesus, in, in other words, asked this lawyer to act on his own conscience. And that's the thing. Jesus says, what do you think he should have done? What do you think about this guy? Was he the neighbor? And I think this is kind of where the subjectivity comes in because every one of us has that moment in which you think, maybe I should help. But immediately that's flooded by other thoughts. Well, I'm too busy. Well, I have other things to do. There are different thoughts that push our conscience aside. And what I believe that the, the word of God for you today is to act on your conscience. Act on your convictions. When you have that need in front of you, when you see that child drowning, to go save that child. Not to say Google Earth every single child that's drowning in a lake. But when there's a child in front of you, are you going to walk on by because you're too busy? Or are you going to stop to say, you know what, this is more important. It's more important to help the person in front of me than whatever else I could have been doing. But what is compassion? How do we have this compassion? Well, the word that it uses there when it talks about uh, the good Samaritan having compassion, if you look at verse 33, it says a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. In other words, the Greek word is basically, I can't pronounce it, I'm not even going to try because Dave will make fun of me. But the Greek word suggests that it's a, an emotion that stirs up inside of the heart. Because the Jewish understanding of the heart wasn't like our understanding where we think the heart literally is the heart. But they believe all of your emotions came from your bowels. From your intestines. That's right. Your gut. So 
When he had compassion, what this is implying is this Samaritan had that emotion. He was overcome with this feeling. I must help. It wasn't something that was just like, yeah, well, I should help the guy. I'm going to go help him. But he had this event. In other words, the compassion itself was an event that happened to the Samaritan. He couldn't keep walking. He must do something about it. The word compassion in the Latin is two words. It's come, which means together, and passion, which means suffering. Kind of like the passion of the Christ is the suffering of the Christ. So come, passion means you suffer together. So when we have compassion for someone else, it means we're willing to stoop down to their level and suffer a little bit. It might mean that we get mud on our brand new sneakers. It might mean that's, that Samaritan had to suffer a little bit financially, give some of his money. It might mean that he has to put him on his own donkey and he has to walk the whole way to the inn. It might mean that he gets some blood on himself, but he says, it's better that I have compassion on this man then I just walk on by and do whatever it is that I was doing. That's what it means when it says in Colossians chapter 3, to have, to put on tender mercies. It's the same understanding. You're putting on this emotion, this feeling, but not conjuring it up. It's not something you're working at, like, I gotta feel bad, I gotta, like, get this emotional experience. No, it's an event that happens inside of you because of your heart being aligned with God's heart. But how do you have it? How do you put it on? How do you put on tender mercies? Obviously not of obligation. Obviously not out of you have to. But when we put on tender mercies, when we put on that event of compassion inside of us, that means God is really taking something out of us that's fleshly. Like we've been talking about in Colossians chapter 3. We're putting off the old man and his deeds. We're putting off the sinful nature. We're putting on something completely different. And it's a work that God does in you, not something you do yourself. So when we have compassion on other people, it might look a little different. It might mean that you have, have to get dirty. It might mean that you have to suffer with someone else. You might have to bear with one another as they talk about their day, as they talk about how miserable they are. You have compassion with them. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I'm not going to give you details on compassion. But I have to ask you, has the gospel cost you anything? Have you lost anything for the gospel? For the name of Jesus, has it cost you something? It might mean financially. It might mean that you lose a little bit of your time. It might mean that you're hurt in the process a little bit. You suffer together. But are you costed anything? Because it cost Jesus his life. When it costs Jesus everything, how can we accept the gospel so cheap that we don't have to buy anything into it either? Not that you're working towards salvation, but you have to ask yourself the question like Jesus did in Luke chapter 14, verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks the conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So if you're saying, what if I don't have this kind of compassion? Maybe you don't have God's heart. Maybe you don't feel bad for other people. Maybe your heart is not aligned with God's heart. Well, how does it happen? How do you put on those tender mercies? It's only by putting on Jesus. It's not conjuring it up. It's not working up this emotion so you can feel bad for other people. But we know that emotion is a powerful motivator. When you really love someone, you have a crush on someone, you do things that are crazy. You might send them ham in the mail. And you don't think about how much it'll cost to send the ham in the mail. You don't think about how much ridicule you get from other people and youth groups in the future five years after you send that ham. But you do it out of the emotion and the abundance of your heart. When you really are filled with an emotion for someone else, you do things without wondering how much harm it's going to cost you because you care so much about someone else. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, eternal life, the kingdom of God. It's kind of like Nehemiah. If you know the story in the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is talking to some friends from Jerusalem. He overhears that the walls of Jerusalem, the temple, was broken down. And Nehemiah didn't think, oh, that's too bad. Well, that stinks. I better go do something about it because I'm morally obligated to go help someone. Nehemiah broke down. He fasted for days. He wept. He cried. He asked for repentance. He didn't do anything, but he asked for repentance to God, crying out on the behalf of his people because he was broken inside. He had compassion. And you can't earn that kind of heart. God has to put it in you. You can't work it up. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to work up that kind of heart. Ezekiel 36 verse 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, if we're not broken, if we're not looking at the needs around us and wondering why it is that we don't feel anything, we have to pray that the Lord breaks our hearts that gives us eyes to see as he sees, to give us the heart that he has. Spurgeon said, let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. What the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. It's only by looking at the gospel saying, oh my gosh, someone died for me. Someone was tortured for me. Died on a cross for me. His blood was spilled for me because of his love for me. How can I sit by, not know why I'm living, be so busy with stuff that's not important and not care about other people? Psalm 51, I think, expresses 
the prayer that I would wish to pray, that I've been praying, that says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your spirit. Renew that steadfast spirit inside of me. And thinking about that, I think how many times we'll just do stuff just because we have to. Do stuff out of compulsion. I'm expected to do this because I'm a Christian. I'm expected to do that. I'm expected to talk to that person. I'm expected to care about my friend. And we don't really think about the motivation, the underlying thing underneath it is the goodness of God, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance saying, Lord, forgive me for being a sinner. Forgive me for not caring about other people. In conclusion tonight, I want to point out something important. And that is, that it's easy to feel compassion about people you care about. It's easy to feel compassion about innocent people. But the Samaritan was the enemy of the Jew. I think that puts a whole twist on the entire story. This isn't a story about some innocent little child in the lake that we're passing by and we should go help that child. This is a story about enemies, natural enemies, Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. David Goodsick talks about this passage in saying, some rabbis taught that a Jew is forbidden to help a Gentile woman who was in distress giving birth. Because if they succeeded, all they did was help one more Gentile come into the world. They often thought that Samaritans were worse than other Gentiles were. That's how much racial hatred was in between these two people. The lawyer himself couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. Notice what he says in verse 37. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan because they hated one another. And what Jesus said is, you don't feel that compassion. You say, oh yes, well I got that down. Uh, Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I think I got that. What about the neighbor part? And what he's saying is, you think you have compassion. You don't know anything. You think you care about other people. When's the last time you cared about that person that you hate? When's the last time you felt that emotion? That's something that's supernatural. It's not something that you work up in yourself. It's something that can only come by the grace of God because Jesus himself died for us while we were still sinners. While we were in direct rebellion against us, he died for even people that would reject him. Even people he foreknew would reject him. He still died for those people. The enemies of Jesus, the enemies of God. On a side note, that's what I think Calvinism doesn't take into account. Is the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus himself went to the cross knowing His death could have been a failure. He could have died on the cross and no one except him. He gave us that free choice. And if he could do that for us, how much more are we to to pray to God, ask God to break our hearts, to have this radical love that isn't just a a compassion that you go out and you help people because they're nice, you help people because they're innocent, you you help them because they're people and you hope that they do that for you too, but you help them because you know that the Savior of the world did it for you. Out of motivation because you say, God, I am such a filthy sinner and yet you died for me, I'm going to help that person. 
What kind of love would that produce in the world? What kind of love would that show other people? Wow, that person helped me and I thought they hated me. Wow, I thought that person hated homosexuals. And here he is doing everything he can, counting the cost for my life. Wow, I thought that person hated me because they're a Christian. And here they are sacrificing their time, their energy, their money to help me. What kind of example will that have? What kind of impact can we have on our world if we have this radical love that's stirred up inside of us through the Holy Spirit where people look at us and say, oh my gosh, that can't be a work of the flesh. That can't be a work of any human. That must be God. And they give glory to God, their God, their Father in heaven for us people when they don't even believe in God. When they're atheists, people that don't believe in God look at us and say, oh my gosh, it has to be God. Because how else could people like that love people like me? So Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48 says, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Even mobsters are willing to love those that love them. Even the worst criminals will love those that love them. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? In other words, how will the world be able to tell you apart? Because even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect. Even as your father in heaven is perfect. This is the key. Everyone look up here. Because this is the key right here. You might be thinking, uh, I think uh, this is impossible. What you're asking me to do is actually impossible. Yes, exactly. If you're starting to feel like this is impossible, you've got it. If you're starting to think, oh my gosh, I think everything that Alan's saying, he's not practicing himself and I should slap him after the Bible study, you're correct. Because apart from God, this is impossible. But with God, all things are what? Say it again. Possible. All things are possible. So when he says you are to be perfect, You're expecting you're supposed to do the best that you can because Jesus did. No, he says you are to be perfect without blemish, without blame, without one thing wrong in you because your father in heaven is perfect. Andrew Murray says, did ever a father or mother think for today I want my child to love me? No, they expect the love every day. And so God wants his child every moment to have a heart filled with love of the spirit every moment how's that happen that's impossible especially when you think about there's some people that don't deserve it they don't deserve that love on the other neither do you sometimes we won't encourage people because we think they'll puff up their pride well if i tell that person he's a really good singer he'll just go to his head you know if i do this one thing for this person they're just going to use it wrongly But who knows? And this is where it comes back to the the drowning child example. Because you might think, well, what if we're saving Hitler, right? And we know he's going to cause more harm. Don't I have the right to say, I'm not going to help that person because he's going to do more harm than good? 
Well, I think it goes back to God's foreknowledge. I think God has the right to do that, but you don't. Who knows if the person you save, as wicked as they may be, as terrible as they may be, the person that you help might be Paul the Apostle who murdered the Christians, who sought out, went on his road to to Damascus to execute Christians. And on the road, Jesus says, yeah, but I have a change of plan. Because I know if I show myself to you, you're not going to be the same. I know if I only speak to you, your life's going to be radically different and you're going to write a lot of the Bible, half of the New Testament. You don't know. I don't know. I don't know what kind of effect this radical love can have on other people. So my command from my Father in heaven is love your neighbor. Love your enemies. That's it. No qualifications. No, and if they do this, then you you don't have to love them. But if they're mean to you, if they gossip about you, then you don't really have to love them. Your command from the Bible, from Jesus himself, is when's the last time that you were like, well, I should help this person that I didn't. Well, go help that person. Your own conscience convicts you. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone has convictions. Act on those convictions. And if you're not convicted anymore, pray that the Lord breaks our hearts. I think so oftentimes we pride ourselves in having a hard heart. To to like pretend that we don't feel anything, that we don't care about anybody. But is there any way that the Lord can melt it with his love? To read his word and say, Lord, you love me so much. How can I remain the same? Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 through 3 says, Write this to the letter, or write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly, repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. God never says to someone that is awake to wake up. He says it to people that are asleep. And he wrote this to a church, a people that profess to be Christians, to profess that they're believers and followers of God. And God would say to you today, count the cost. Has the gospel cost you anything? When's the last time that you looked at your life and say, why am I so stinking busy? What am I doing this for? I say that Jesus is the the primary reason of my living. I say that Jesus is the, the first love of my heart. But look at where you are now. What are you doing differently? How are you acting that the world looks at you and says, oh my gosh, that is that is so different from everyone else that I know? The law of concentration says that people often pursue after things that they're passionate about. If you're a musician, you don't care about how much effort it's going to take for you to write a song. You work at that song. If you're an athlete, you don't care about how many Twinkies you're going to have to sacrifice because the goal that you have before you is so much greater. The victory is so much greater. You're willing to sacrifice all of these things. But if you're not an athlete, those Twinkies look pretty good. It's because you don't have any goals. You don't have any aspirations. When's the last time you have a goal and you know where you're going? Think about it for a second. Why are you living your life? 
What is the main reason? And don't just give me a blanket answer for Jesus. What is, don't answer, think about in your head, what is a goal of your life? Why are, you doing, why are you doing the things that you're doing? Why are you doing the things that you like? Why are you with the people that you're with? Why are you in a relationship with the people that you're in a relationship with? What is the reason behind that? Because the philosophy behind everything is going to work out your motivation for doing things. And it might take you 100 years before you realize I've wasted my life. I didn't do anything that was worth any meaning. There's a parable that Jesus tells. He says there's this man that hoarded up all these treasures because he had so much grain. He says, well, I got I to gotta find a, a safe house for this grain. I got so much. So he worked. He worked really hard. And finally, he got all of his grain, all of his riches put together in this bar. And he was like, yes, now I can relax and be happy because I have my inheritance. And then God said to that man, you fool. You're going to die this very night. Then what good is all that inheritance? What good is all that stuff that you have? I think that's the thing that the hurricane produced in us uh, this past week is we had so many concerns, right? How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you had a concern? You were really worried or stressed out about something. Maybe it's school, maybe it's work. And you were so stressed out about it. And then the hurricane happened. You're like, well, all right. Well, I'm just going to be bored, I guess, because I don't have to worry about that thing for another week. Right? It just stops you. It like, it puts you to a halt. And for a second, you're just left with your thoughts. And you're like, all right. I mean, that's what happened to me. I don't know about you. But I was just kind of like, wow, all those things I cared about kind of don't matter right now because I don't have electricity and people are stuck in their homes and they're dying. So what am I going to do? I think God puts those trials and those storms in our life to wake us up, to say, why are you doing these things? And then it's through that motivation, through uh, setting the goal, saying, Lord, I want to serve you because you have motivated me. You have worked in my heart that we identify the need and we meet it with that passion inside of our heart that God ignited. So in other words, Thomas Edison used to only get four hours of sleep every night because he'd be working on his experiments. And we all know how productive he is. It's because when you're so passionate about something, you don't care about the damage to yourself. You don't care about the cost to yourself because you're so in love with the thing. How many of you are in love with Jesus in that kind of way? You don't care about your reputation. You don't care about what damage is going to be done to you or what other people are going to think or how hard it is to take this task that God has before you. You love Jesus so much. You care about him so much. It's all nothing. Nothing else really matters. I'll close with this. Tozer also said, I would like to see the Spirit of God move upon us until our young people cannot afford to sit and figure out who they are going to marry and when. That will come in its time. But they will be thinking, where can I serve God? Then one day, suddenly, the hand of God will be laid on their shoulders and off they will go.